Welcome to Wives and Knives, a true crime podcast with your hosts, Danny Smith and me, Kelly Lee. Please remember that we mean no disrespect to anyone mentioned in this episode or across any of the Wives and Knives platforms. We have an interest in true crime and related topics, and whilst we may offer our own personal views on certain items, it is meant to be educational and as lighthearted as possible. The information we present is collated from research gathered from the internet, and we reference and credit our sources wherever possible. Yeah, come and check us out on the socials. On Instagram, we are Wives and Knives the Pod, Twitter at Knives Wives, and Facebook Wives and Knives. Um, we've also got a website where you can check out photographs and the source notes from all of our episodes, and that's wivesandknives.wixsite.com forward slash my site. And you can also make some suggestions about cases on there as well. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Wives and Knives. Yeah, hello. We hope you're all keeping safe and well out there. This week, we've got a mini episode for you. and We're both covering a case where we discuss crimes where the criminal has upped and disappeared to never be seen again. But before we get into that, let's have our usual little catch up. Um, I've had a really busy week. I've had another wedding dress fitting as my wedding is approaching. I think I mentioned it in a past episode. We'll be taking some time off over my wedding. Um, so yeah, I'm really looking forward to getting married eventually, so that's really nice. What about you, Kelly? Um, I'm also very much excited about you getting married, um, but I've had a quiet one this week. Um, just been catching up on Ted Lasso season two, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, just boring parenting things like sorting school uniform and stuff like that. Nothing very exciting, I'm afraid. Um, shall we get on with the cases? Yes. So obviously we talk about criminals every week and usually we know where they are and what happened to them, but what about the ones that are never caught? Yeah, no matter how large or small their crimes are, the fact that they managed to elude the authorities for any period of time I find sort of impressive. And I always wonder if it's because they're like brilliant hiders or are they just dead? <laughs> well, yeah, being a, brill a brilliant hider would be up there, wouldn't it? Um, how do you think you'd fare on the lamb from the police, Danny? It's shit, really shit. Um, there was a program on Channel 4 where people tried to evade capture. Yeah! Oh, I was gonna say, um, like, I. Is it called Hunted? Yeah, yeah. Oh my it. god. I really quite fancy giving that a go, you know. I think I'd be okay. I would absolutely love it, but it's the initial. You know, like when they drop them in the middle of a city centre and they have to run. I'm slow as fuck. <laughs> like I wouldn't get anywhere. They'd be like, "Oh, she's just is she just ambulant? Oh, she's window shopping. She's outside Zara. Fucking get her." Um, so yeah, but I, I love shows like that. And yeah, I, I find there's something quite like appealing about it. I, yeah, I feel like um, I'm really good at hide and seek. Though. Well, there you go. Yeah. Um, well, when I think of sort of famous criminals who disappeared, I always think of D.B. Cooper, um, Lord Lucan and the three guys who escaped from Alcatraz, um, and like war criminals who are like living off the grid in South America or, or something. Um, so I was really interested when you said that you were covering this case. Yeah, my case is the case of the Dupont de la Grande family. I've been practicing my French pronunciation, awesome. it's probably bullshit, <laughs> but... Trippian. Thank you. Um, bonjour. And... Mange too, mange too. We're done now. 
Um, but yeah, it's a case of a familiar side where all the family are murdered and the perpetrator, the patriarch of the family, has never been found. Ooh. So. <laughs> <laughs> so without further ado. So without further ado, let me begin. In April 2011, in Nantes, France, the neighbours of the Dupont de Lagan family noticed that the house was shuttered and there had been no movement in and out of the house for the past few days. And this was usually like a really busy household with um, people coming and going, so they noted it as strange. Also, pinned to the door was a note asking for the post to be redirected, so it seemed as if the whole family had up and left. However, out of their three cars, only one was missing, a Citroen C5, I believe. So the family unit that lived in that house was made up of Xavier Dupont de Lagan, Agnes Dupont de Lagan, <laughs> I won't keep saying oh, please do. Um, and their four children, Anne, Arthur, Benoit and Thomas. So, on the 11th of April, 2011, La Perivie, the school that Anne and Benoit attended, received a note from Xavier saying that he was pulling them out of school and that the family were planning a sudden move to Australia for business. Also, the school where Agnes worked had received a similar message. So this groundwork was being set as if they were moving away. Mm. On April 13th, so a few days later, one of their neighbours actually reported her suspicions to the police because she noticed there was no one there, this wasn't usual. And the police went to the home to check on it. And the police even entered the property. They got a locksmith to open the door, which I found a little unusual, but I'm glad they did. They didn't actually find anything on that occasion. They noticed that a few sort of personal items like photos were missing and some bedding. But nothing was in disarray and the police believed this meant the family had packed up and left voluntarily. But Agnes's family members were not satisfied with this explanation. They had started um, bringing their concerns to the police as well. Like the schools and workplaces, they too had received some strange letters. These letters were signed by Xavier saying that he'd been working for the government and had been moved into hiding for a few years. That this was for his protection and for the protection of his family. And it was saying that they were gonna be moved to the United States. However, these letters told the family that they must tell people that they had emigrated to Australia for business. Mm. So the line that he wanted everyone to go with was it was a business move to Australia, but he was also telling the family that he was in hiding. These letters are actually transcribed um, from French into English and they're available quite readily on the internet and I've actually got a few sort of extracts from them. So it starts. You are receiving this letter by conventional post because for the next few years, I can't communicate in any other way. No emails, no texts, no phone calls for safety reasons. When you read this letter, I will no longer be in France and I won't be able to return for a as yet undetermined period of time. You must be wondering what's going on. Here's the story, at least as much as I'm allowed to tell you. 
This letter is the only correspondence we are allowed to write. This letter goes on for pages and pages, so I've just chosen sort of the most interesting highlights. But it goes on to explain, we have been taken into protective custody of the US government and transferred to the US. We have new identities, which must of course be kept secret. By the time you read this letter, we officially no longer exist as French citizens. And it goes on. It even has little notes such as, important in caps, tell the youngsters not to divulge any information on Facebook and do not be surprised if the kids no longer reply to them. So he's like saying please lie to everybody. Yeah. And says, but so this is sent to his family and her family, so Xavier's family and Agnes's family. And just like a side point, Xavier's family kind of accept this. He's always been mega secretive. He's got quite a few sort of irons in the fire business-wise, mm -hmm. but no one really knows what he does. Even his daughter, when asked by school friends what he does for a living, couldn't tell them. He was a businessman or a salesman. Mm -hmm. He had lots of companies registered in his name that had people working for them, but then were soon dismissed. Wow. So very mysterious. And his family are like, oh, of course he's working for the government. <laughs> like they accept this. But like I said, Agnes's family knew she would just never leave without saying a word. And they continued to insist that something was strange about the disappearance. So the police returned to investigate the home. All told, the police actually visited six times over a very short period of time. And on April the 21st, during the police's final like investigative visit to the house, the bodies of Agnes and the four Dupont de Lagan children are finally found and the bodies of their two dogs as well. Two graves are excavated, excavated. one containing the bodies of Agnes, Arthur, Anne and Benoit, and another one which had Thomas in it. He was buried separately and they were discovered under the patio in the back garden. From images I've seen, it's almost like they're under a porch. Yeah, I know what you mean, like a crawl space. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But by then, almost three weeks had passed since Agnes and her children had last been seen. And their father, Xavier, had completely disappeared. Wow. So when they're finding these bodies, they might have expected to find Xavier as well, but nothing. So a little background on the family. The Dupont de Lagan family were seemingly a very nice, very middle-class family. There is nothing particularly alarming about them. But Xavier Perrier Marie Dupont de Lagan, that's his full name, um, the head of the family, the father, was actually a descendant from old French aristocracy. So they came from very fucking posh people. His father, Bernard Hubert de Pondulgan, was a count and Xavier took like a lot of pride in his noble heritage. He was really, like, if you knew him, you would know where he came from. Yeah. Like he, it was one of those people that had like a, something that they felt defined them and his was that he came from this aristocracy. So, Xavier was raised in a really strict upper-class Catholic society. Well-to-do, but really conservative, really straight-laced. And when Xavier was around 10, his father was sick of this claustrophobic society of Versailles, where they grew up. Versailles. Versailles. 
I was doing so well with my pronunciation in Versailles. So they grew up in Versailles and his father, alright Kelly, she's pissing herself. <laughs> so sorry. When Xavier was around 10, his father was tired of this claustrophobic society of Versailles where they lived. And his father just left the city to travel, so he wanted to break away. And he left um, little Xavier with the rest of the family. Without his father, Xavier had this really strict upbringing, but it was a very privileged one. Like, mm. he had a lot of money as well. And when he was 20, he met Agnes Hodanger, another young member of the Versailles bourgeoisie. And although he claimed to be in love with her, he really wasn't ready to settle down. He wanted to explore similar to what his father had done. So he left town, went on his travels. But when he returned, he found that Agnes had become pregnant by another man. And in the sort of their culture of the time, this would have meant that he wanted nothing to do with her, but he completely defied like the social norms of the time and was like, I love her, I shouldn't have left her, I want to marry her and I'll adopt this boy as my own. Oh. So he did. And yeah, they, they were seemingly very happy. They didn't stay in Versailles. They spent the 90s travelling around France and continued to grow their family. In the early 2000s, they actually attempted to emigrate to Florida because they dreamed of living there, but it was completely unsuccessful. And through this process, they lost quite a lot of money. I don't know how immigration works in that kind of no. respect, but it, it did And he'd been him. <laughs> and there's emails published, translated from French, that you can get all over the internet, where he pours his heart out to this mistress and says he's at rock bottom, and he talks about it would be nicer if he set the house on fire and used sleeping pills to kill his family so that Agnes could inherit the money, and he, like, fantasises all these scenarios where they'd get more money back. So it's, it's quite dark, what yeah. he's saying. Um, talking of things you can read on the internet, there's also posts that Agnes put on some forums um, where she speaks about being unhappy in her marriage because her husband is so consumed with like a, a sense of failing because yeah. he can't provide and how he's quite cold mm -hmm. um, towards her. And these posts from the internet go back years and years. So it, obviously there'd been underlying tensions in yeah. the relationship. We're talking like 10 years before we wow. get to April 2011. So yeah, the behavior is a little suspicious mm. and is a precursor for what happens, I feel. So January 2011, three months before the murders, Xavier's father, the Count, passes away. So you would think that he'd get a lot of money from this, but his father had also suffered financial troubles at the end of his life. He'd been really ill and living in near poverty. So like actual, yeah, yeah. actually very, very poor. So there was no inheritance no. from this death. And Xavier went through his belongings and couldn't find anything of value. The only thing he inherited from his father was a point. 22 long rifle I think it's called a point twenty two. Yeah. A twenty two caliber. I'm not not up to it with guns, am I? Um but 
Xavier's never shown an interest in guns before, but now he gets this one off his dad, it becomes like his new favourite thing. And he becomes super into learning how to shoot and he goes to the shooting range frequently, sometimes takes his kids with him, like he's mega into this, gets his gun licence and records that were looked into after the murders show that he actually bought a silencer for the rifle in March and he followed that purchase with a very ominous shopping spree. In the weeks leading up to the Dupont de Lagan murders, Xavier also purchased cement, chalk lye, bullets, excessive cleaning supplies, garbage bags, a spade and a trolley. Oh wow. Yeah, that's a serial killer shopping list for sure. It really is. In the weeks before the family's disappearance, Xavier externally seemed like he was preparing for a big move. Witnesses have come forward mentioning that they've seen Xavier loading things into cars in the week before he vanished. And this sort of lead up time is actually detailed really well in the Netflix documentary Unsolved Mysteries. It is called House of Horrors, oh, okay. um, this particular one. And the case focuses a lot on Xavier's behaviour beforehand. I do like, I do want to point out it's very much just looking at one side of it, but that's what got me hooked. And it's not a bad documentary by any means. Like, it's great. Give it a watch. So Xavier also paid off all the remaining debts he had which seems weird seeing as he was in so much financial trouble but he still had enough money to clear his debts but i think that just gives you an indication of the financial trouble that he felt he was in yeah, is a very odd. different kind of financial trouble to you what you or i might think yeah. you can pay these private school fees yeah but he still feels like poor but it's comparative to what he grew up with i suppose so he pays off the private school fees um, he closes all the bank accounts in the Dupont de Lagan name. He um, ends the lease on the family home and he takes that note to the letterbox so it looks like mm. they're all going to go somewhere. Agnes is seen a few times in the first few days of April and at some point in those first few days the family do go to the cinema together so they're acting pretty normal. Thomas is at away at college but then comes home on the 4th and grabs a bite to eat with Xavier. Thomas comes home because Xavier tells him that his mother Agnes has been in a biking accident and needs to come home. Thomas is like a right frequent texter with his friends and mm -hmm. they notice that the taxis get pretty like weird go from like long paragraphs like joking chatting to um i've lost my phone charger dad's trying to find me and you're like they're just a bit stilted oh, okay. and then the end completely but after the 5th of april there is no confirmed sightings of anybody in the family apart from xavier of course the family get located and they realize that xavier is missing so he is prime suspect for the murders and really I don't think there's anybody out there that is anyone professionally anyway saying it's not him. There is a few theories, conspiracy theories online and a few of his family that still maintain it wasn't him. But everything um, 
police work wise points to obviously it being him and his suspicious behaviour beforehand is pretty damning, I feel. Yeah. So he's prime suspect for the murders. There's one car missing. And the police start looking for him. They find out all this information about his strange behaviour beforehand. But, surprisingly, Xavier is really not hard to track down. He's basically left a trail of fucking breadcrumbs for his movements. He's been caught speeding in his car he has openly been checking into hotels with cctv cameras there's you can watch him check into hotels online he's not he's yeah he's using false names but he's not going to any extent to hide his his route it's super traceable he moves around southern france in different areas and he seems to be going to places that he's been before and had like happy times it's mentioned quite a lot. He goes to a really expensive plush hotel. He's seen checking out, but then he leaves his car in the parking lot and heads up into the hills. Now, this area of France that he was last seen in is a port and there's lots of ways to get out of France from this area. There's also big hills full of caves and cliffs either side. So, it is an ideal place to walk up into the mountains with your huge rifle and kill yourself and not be found for quite a long time because it's mm. really like intricate terrain yeah. but it's also a really good place to get out of the country and Xavier's body has never been found Wow Some investigators believe that he killed himself but there is still an ongoing international search for him. No remains have ever been found, which indicate that he could still be out there. His current whereabouts, dead or alive, are completely unknown. Random. Mad, isn't it? So mad. Just a few points that once I'd, like, done this, I realised I'm not, sort of, interjected anywhere. It's the house had absolutely no forensic evidence of murders taking place in it. What a twist. So either he has the cleaning ability of an absolute magician, or I, I don't know. Or it was professionally done. The family had traces of sleeping pills in their body, apart from Agnes, and shots in the head from the rifle that he owned. Agnes didn't have any sleeping tablets, but she slept with a sleep apnea machine that stopped operating at 3.30am on the 4th of April. So we can assume that's yeah. when she died or she definitely didn't use it to sleep after that time. Yeah. yeah. Thomas was definitely killed at a later date, separate from the others. The dogs weren't heard barking after the 4th of April either. So the police believe that everybody except Thomas was killed on the 4th and he was killed on the 5th. But the house, absolutely spotless. There's companies registered in Xavier's name that still exist, but without anything yeah. traceable going on. But the police cannot find out what these companies were ever doing either. He was a very clever man whether he is alive or dead now still extremely clever yeah what do you think 
I think that he's still alive. Oh, okay. Um, because they're still looking for him, and I have a lot of faith in policing. But <laughs> <laughs> it could be well be misplaced. But they're still looking for him. Recently, a man was arrested at a Scottish airport on the belief that it was him. Wow. Later, turned out it wasn't. This guy had had his identity stolen by somebody else in France, and it's it's a very sort of entangled web but still actively looking for him some of his family believe he's alive they're like he would not kill himself he would not whether it being like a catholic thing or just they knowing who he is inherently as a person are like no he would always try and get away with it he would always try and live he's too conniving almost and they believe that he has the sort of knowledge and the expertise to get anywhere. He has a very, um, I don't know, universal look about him. I feel like he's not very distinctive and he could blend in anywhere. Some people don't believe that he even killed the rest of his family. And they keep citing the fact he had a very bad back as a reason why he couldn't do it. He wouldn't physically be able to lift. Like these are grown up children, they're like 20 he wouldn't physically be able to move them yeah um, but then there's lots of arguments for adrenaline and what you can do if you are desperate um but that's mentioned a lot in the um unsolved mysteries documentary there's like people that knew him that are like oh no he couldn't have done that so give it a watch it's great but yeah that's um mm, very interesting xavier dupont de Lagan, where are you <laughs> very interesting case yeah super interesting so i hope you enjoyed that like i said you can lose hours looking at those like reddit threads that go on forever about this case it is really one that has interested people from all over the world so it is a great one to lead yourself in tons of information um the documentary loads on youtube like tons if you want to watch video clips as well youtube's full of them but yeah we'll we'll link some sources to start you off but internet's full of stuff on this so there we go that was my disappeared criminal case kelly what is yours oh that's like so interesting thank you for um telling me about that i didn't really know much about that case before today to be quite fair um i'm going to take us through another disappeared criminal and it's one that the true crime community has been enthralled by for a very long time so he is perhaps one of the most infamous missing criminals of all time and he was known as db cooper and no one knows who he actually was, but he's officially been on the run for almost 50 years. Like, it'll be 50, uh, 50 years in November. In fact, it wasn't until 2016 that the FBI finally stopped looking for him after one of the longest active searches in its history. On Thanksgiving Eve, Wednesday, November 24th, 1971... Um, A man calling himself Dan Cooper entered Portland International Airport and purchased a one-way ticket for $20. He was described as an accentless, middle-aged white male in a dark suit and tie, so he drew little attention in the busy terminal. He was assigned an aisle seat, 18C, for the 4.35pm flight to Tacoma Airport in Seattle. And the plane was carrying 36 passengers that day, as well as the pilot, first officer, flight engineer and two flight attendants, Tina Mucklow and Florence Schaffner. 
And shortly after takeoff, Cooper handed Florence Schaffner a note. And that wasn't like totally strange for the time. Like men traveling alone would commonly slip flight attendants their phone numbers or hotel room numbers. So Florence didn't initially read it. She just like put it in a pocket and ignored it. But the next time that she passed by Cooper, he motioned for her to come closer. And when she did, he told her that she'd better read the note and signalled his suitcase, telling her that he had a bomb. So Florence went immediately to the galley and she read the note and she showed it to the other flight attendant, Tina, and together they rushed to the cockpit to show the pilot and he immediately contacted air traffic control and they in turn contacted the Seattle police who informed the FBI. And the FBI contacted the airline's president, a guy called Donald Nyrop, <laughs> who, eager to avoid any negative pu publicity, advised them to comply with Cooper's demands. Now, Dan Cooper is very clever and not wanting any evidence to be left on the flight, he asked for the note back from the flight attendant, Florence. And because of this, the exact wording of his note is unknown. But Florence recalls that the handwritten ink note demanded £200,000, well, sorry, $200,000 in cash and two sets of parachutes. And these items should be delivered on arrival at Seattle Tacoma Airport. And Cooper claimed that if they didn't comply with these demands, he would blow up the plane. Everyone who read the note agreed that it contained the phrase, no funny business. So when Florence returned with the note for, with the note, <laughs> when Florence returned with the note for Cooper, he'd moved to the, uh, next to the window so that she could like sit in his aisle seat. But she must have been shitting herself. Well, like, yeah. Literally so scary. She does really, like, I think she's pretty commendable for how she, well, both of the flight attendants, to be fair, they really handle this well. So, yeah, she sits beside him and he opens the suitcase wide enough for her to get, like, a glimpse inside. And she sees that there are wires and, like, two cylinders which were potentially sticks of dynamite. Um, he then directs her to return to the cockpit and tell the pilot to stay in the air until the money and the parachutes like are ready on the ground. Okay. So, and the pilot does that and he announces over the intercom that the jet's going to circle before landing due to a mechanical problem. And because of him doing that, most of the passengers were completely unaware like that there was a hijacking going on. Now, Dan Cooper was very precise about his demands, like everything from the type of parachutes to the actual cash, you know, everything was like clearly specified what he wanted. And he wanted $200,000 in $20 bills only. And, and that was due to the weight. So if smaller bills were used, it would add extra weight and could be dangerous for him skydiving out of the plane. And the larger bills, they'd weigh less, but they would be like really hard for him to like pass on or like launder. Um, but he thought of everything. So he even specified that he wanted dollar bills with serial numbers that were random and not sequential. And the FBI agents like gave him random um, serial numbers, but they made sure that all of them began with the letter L. He's really got this planned out. So really clever yeah he and then and there's a lot of knowledge as well you know going into this 
So at 5.24pm, the ground team, they had the cash and the parachutes ready and Cooper ordered that the plane taxi to a remote well-lit area like after the, they landed. And he also had the cabin lights dimmed and ordered that no vehicles like were allowed to approach the plane. So a single Northwest Airline employee drove out near to the plane and Cooper then ordered flight attendant Tina Mucklow to lower the stairs. And this airline employee carried first the two parachutes um, and then a large bank bag to the stairs and handed them over to Tina. So with the demands met, Cooper then did what he said he would and he released the 36 passengers and flight attendant Florence Schaffner, but he didn't release Tina or the other three men in the cockpit. So Cooper told the crew that he wanted to go to Mexico City and again he had even more specific, precise plans for them to follow. So he clearly knew a shit ton about the plane. Um, it was a Boeing 727-100, I believe. So Cooper ordered the pilot to like remain below an altitude of 10,000 feet and to keep the airspeed below 150 knots. And that would be like, well, an experienced skydiver would easily be able to dive at, at that. And the jet was like really lightweight and would have no problem flying at such a slow speed through the dense air at 10,000 feet. So I, th I feel like Cooper had specifically f like chosen this flight, not for location as much as the actual plane and what it was capable of doing. Yeah, he had a lot of knowledge. Massively. So he also directed the captain um, or the pilot to depressurize the cabin and he knew again that a person could breathe normally at 10,000 feet and that if the cabin had equalized pressure inside and out there wouldn't be like any violent gusts of winds like when the, the back stairs were lowered which was like part of his escape plan. So, at 7.46pm, after refueling the plane and going over his orders with the crew and the pilots like planning a low-altitude route, which they called Vector 23, um, and this allowed the, the jet to fly safely like west of the mountains at the low altitude that Cooper had demanded. So, after all that sorted, they eventually set off. Now, after takeoff... Cooper ordered the flight attendant and the rest of the crew to just stay in the cockpit and there was no like peephole in there in the cockpit door or any remote cameras like we have now like it was the 70s so the crew had no idea what he was actually doing in the cabin at that time like more than likely strapping shitloads of cash to his body I imagine <laughs> um, at 8 o'clock so like about 15 minutes after takeoff. A red light gave gave the pilot a warning that a door was open. So the pilot asked Cooper over the intercom if there was anything that they could do for him, um, to which he replied with an angry no. And that was the last word that anyone ever heard from Dan Cooper. So at 8.24pm, the jet sort of crawled as the nose dipped like first and then it was like followed by a correcting dip at the tail end it's like a bit of a bump if, if you know what I mean 
and the pilot made sure to like know the spot where that dip took place and it was 25 miles north of Portland near the Lewis River and the crew quite rightly assumed that the aft stairs so the back stairs had been lowered and that Cooper had jumped however they didn't let leave the cockpit to check properly because they didn't want to disobey his orders to stay inside now throughout the hijacking the police had attempted to follow the plane and like wait to see someone jump in um, but they'd originally used um, F-106 fighter jets and these planes are like you know built to go at really high speeds um, so they and they proved to be quite useless at lower speeds yeah um, so they ditched that idea and then they opted to um, use the Air National Guard Lockheed T-33 um, but before they were actually able to catch up to the hijacked plane Cooper had already jumped so they, they had no way of knowing like when it actually happened they didn't see anything at 10.15pm, the jet landed in Reno, Nevada, and the pilot spoke over the intercom, um, like, I guess, checking if he was still on board at that point, um, but they didn't receive any response. And so they opened the cockpit door and they found the cabin was completely empty. Cooper, along with the money and any trace of him, was gone. And the only item left was the second parachute. So that Thanksgiving the next day and for several weeks afterwards, the police performed an extensive search that failed to turn up any trace of Dan Cooper, the parachute or the money. And the police began searching criminal records for the name Dan Cooper, just in case the hijacker used his real name, <laughs> but they had no luck. However, and this is quite interesting, one of their early results would prove to have a lasting impact on the case. A police record for an Oregon man named D.B. Cooper was discovered and he was considered a possible suspect, but he was very quickly cleared by the police. Um, but a journalist accidentally confused D.B. Cooper's name for the alias Dan Cooper given by the hijacker. And that simple mistake was then quoted by another journalist and so on and so on until the entire media was using the initials of a completely unrelated guy. And so the original Dan Cooper became known as D.B. Cooper for the rest of the investigation and the rest of time. Now, no one ever heard from Dan Cooper again. All subsequent investigations failed to prove whether or not he survived the jump, like he straight up disappeared. In 1976, charges for air piracy were filed and they still stand today. So what do you think happened? Oh my God, he must have survived the jump because then a body in a parachute would have been found. Mm, you think so? Well, I have got a little bit more information for you. So on the 10th of February, 1980, an eight-year-old boy found bundles of $20 bills with serial numbers matching the ones from the Cooper stash in the Columbia River. Now, the discovery of these bundles led to new searches around the area. However, an eruption of Mount St. Helens on May the 18th, 1980, that same year, likely destroyed any remaining clues about the Cooper case. 
So some people believe that that helps support the theory that he possibly didn't survive the jump because they found the money there. But mm, make up your own mind. Um, so over the years, like many people have confessed to being Dan Cooper or DB Cooper, and the FBI do like check the fingerprints of those who confess to be him against the unknown prints collected from the hijacked plane. But so far, none of them have been a match. Now, in August of 2011, a woman called Marla Cooper made claims that Dan Cooper was actually her uncle, L.D. Cooper. And Marla claimed that she'd um, overheard a conversation saying that her uncle had hijacked a plane um, and their money problems were over. However, she also explained that no money was ever recovered since her uncle lost it whilst he was jumping from the plane. And although many people have identified Dan Cooper as one of their long lost relatives, Marla's claims are kind of validated by one of the flight attendants who confirmed LD Cooper looked very similar to the hijacker that they'd spoken to. Wow. Now this theory, um, you know, that it could be LD Cooper, Marla's uncle, it's not one that the authorities fully get behind. So it makes me wonder if they've checked things and they know that that isn't true you know um in july of 2016 the fbi officially announced that they would no longer be allocating active resources to continuing the db cooper investigation but that doesn't mean that they've solved the case of cooper's identity now the leading theory by investigators is that cooper did not in fact survive his jump now, although his extensive knowledge of like the plane and the plane systems like initially led police to believe he could be a professional skydiver, they have since concluded that a jump in such weather conditions over quite a ruthless patch um, of wilderness in the middle of winter whilst wearing like a business suit um, was quite a risky feat and they didn't think that any expert would be stupid enough to try it. Um, the fact that the bag of the matching ransom money was found like left in the stream further supports the theory like, like we said that whoever he was he didn't survive. What are your thoughts? Okay, now I think he died. <laughs> I'm really easily swayed. I don't know. I, I personally, I think it's very similar to your case in that, you know, two clearly very intelligent people here. You know, I, I don't know. I, I think that Dan Cooper possibly did, did make it. I think that possibly he survived and he did leave some cash like there to throw them off the scent like he could still be living off that cash um, and some savvy investments um you know whatever happened it is a great story and i know it wouldn't have been nice for the flight attendant no it would have been terrifying it would have been terrifying but i kind of feel like it's pretty much a victimless crime yeah like no one no one was really like it wouldn't have been emotionally great for the crew <laughs> but I don't think a lot of, I don't think any of the passengers are really aware that they weren't you know psychologically scarred by their experience you know yeah, I feel what like, a crazy story yeah, really good 
Um, so yeah, as always, thank you very much for listening. Um, I do believe the sound was a bit off last week, so apologies. Um, we'll see what we can do this week. If anyone wants to tell us like what we can do, that would be great. Like, please tell us how to record perfectly this sound because we're not engineers at all. No, we don't know what we're doing. And maybe you know, I, I think um, thank you to those people that clearly listen. Yeah. In regards to the... Put up with the noise that sounds like we're next to a babbling brook. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I think the majority of people give us pretty good feedback. It's just the, the few, isn't it? Yeah, and we get it. We're trying. Yeah, we're very trying. <laughs> um, so next week we will be back with Stephanie Slater and Julie Dart and the horrible... Michael Sams is he called Michael Sams my mind's gone blank Sams um yeah yeah so then we're gonna take a break for my wedding but we'll still be on the socials so see us there absolutely so until then stay safe and look after yourselves bye, bye.